Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name's Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Stephen Duncombe. And it's a great honor to have Stephen with us in the pod, somebody I've known over 20 years, but haven't over seen... Over 20 years. But yes. haven't seen for about 20 years. Exactly. But whose work I keep up with, uh, how couldn't you if you're interested in progressive politics and activism, uh, and not just in the United States, but at a theoretical as well as an applied level. So, Stephen, it's it's really great to, to be with you. And, of course, you're, you're in a building um, with an outlook that I know pretty well from many years ago at uh, New York University. So I'm wondering as a starter, your starter for 10, as they say in game shows in on the BBC, your starter for 10, Professor Duncan, is if you could... <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what's on your mind right now, what you're playing with, what you're thinking about, what's troubling you, whatever it may be, sir. Um, yeah, hope and despair. Uh, and, and I mean that on a micro level. I mean it on a macro level. It's, it's really about I've been grappling with, you know, in a world that's just so full of despair. Mm. Every morning, there's something more to mourn. There's something more to be depressed about. Um how does one keep hope? And, you know, I, I keep Antonio Gramsci's, you know, phrase, to be an activist means you have to have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. It's kind of the thing that keeps me going. But it's really hard sometimes with all the pessimism that anybody with any intellect will actually, of course, see around them. It's hard to to muster up that optimism of the will. But I really think that optimism of the will is absolutely essential because uh, otherwise we're just headed for despair. There, there's a, a not very good book by Raymond Williams, but with a great <laughs> title. I think it's yeah, Resources of Hope. Mm. And uh, I think uh, you've been a resource of hope for so many of us for so long. And I appreciate your talking about despair being its couplet because, and this pessimism and optimism dialectic being very important. I get very frustrated with people who are all on the side of cultural studies, everything's open and wonderful and wild and all things are possible. And on the side of political economy, the world's fucked. We can't do a thing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the irony being that cultural studies forgets all the structures of power. Yeah. And that political economy forgets conflict yeah. as being at the it, basis of its supposed ideology when it becomes all functionalist. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And it's funny, Toby, because I think in some ways that's what attracted me to cultural studies uh, 30 years ago is actually the hope part. Um, mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll never forget kind of stumbling across the um, the Birmingham school stuff. Um, and just in this moment when, you know, the 60s had failed um, and uh, Thatcher is in ascendancy, they're finding little pockets of hope in mm. subcultures. And that really spoke to me because, you know, for me, I'm coming at it a little bit later in the 80s, but it's the Reagan 80s. And I was very much trying to find little moments and spots and pieces and places in which I could actually find that hope. And, you know, I've been accused of I actually got fired from MIT before I even got hired. Longer story um, for intellectual incoherence. 
<laughs> but but um I think that you know if if I could talk back to the president folks that fired me for intellectual incoherence um I would say actually what's been coherent in both my studies and my activism is in these moments of despair in a world of despair grabbing at these little bits and pieces of hope right whether it's the hope which is you can see in an alternative subculture or the hope that you can see even in the expressions perverted as they are in an advertisement you know that, that is always promoting a utopian solution or a utopian you dream um, finding those little pockets of hope are really the things that kind of keep us going and they kind of keep me going as well. Um, but it's sometimes hard to find those. Um, and uh, it's easy to slip back into despair and it's easy to slip back into critique, I think. And I think you're absolutely right. Critique is essential. There's no doubt in my mind. But I also wonder if critique has sort of run its course as uh, kind of a revolutionary or even rebellious ideal. It's like, we kind of know we're fucked, right? Mm-hmm. Is there anybody out there that says, this is the best of all possible worlds? <laughs> you know, um, we kind of know we're fucked, but we don't know what else to do. And so that's why I think hope is such an essential part of, you know, a political life, but also what I think cultural studies gave me. One of your many publishing ventures as a writer in particular, but also as an editor and, in fact, publisher, is Thomas More's Utopia. Yes. Uh, I think I mentioned to you in a message the other day that I'd been consulting it and citing it um, because it has a warning against the perils of football for the working class, (laughs) which is um, the first record of warning about the perils of football that I've found. Um, there's supposedly something in the Canterbury Tales also, but I haven't about sports, but I haven't been able to locate it. So tell me about Utopia yeah. and Thomas More, and not only about it, because it's yeah. utopic dystopic in, in an interesting way, I think, yeah. but also your venture. Sure. And it, it's actually it, the story of how I got to Utopia, I think, is in many ways colors my idea about Thomas More's Utopia. So I read Utopia probably as a freshman in college and found it incredibly dreary. And, you know, really, (laughs) I read book two and probably tried to get through it as soon as possible. And book two being where the island of Utopia is described by the narrator. Um, And then I promptly forgot it. Um, And then I got this opportunity to go to Moscow and as a Fulbright uh, scholar in residence or something of that nature and teach at the University of Moscow um about uh political imagination um and uh frederick jameson was there although i'm proud to say we did not have a single conversation that went deeper than how we liked our eggs in the morning um but you know it was great to hang out with him for a couple of weeks but what i had to do is i had to prepare a series of lectures for a country in which political imagination had led in many ways to uh, destruction and despair um and so how to grapple with that. And so one of the things I told myself is, well, I have to start at the source. I have to start with Moore's Utopia. And when I read it again, I read it in a radically different way. Um, yes, there is Thomas More's uh, ideal of this island of Utopia, which is really his 16th century Europe turned upside down. That is, uh, property is common. Um there is no lawyers. Um, women have limited, but they do have rights. 
Um, and uh, essentially, it is a world of justice and a world of of, of hope in many ways. Um, and that's that's still there. But what's kind of cool about Utopia, I realized this time around, was actually book one. And all of the ancillary sort of poems and letters that prefaced it in the original um, uh, introduction, in the original editions back in 1516, and still show up in some scholarly editions. Because what those do is that they call into question what his utopia is, right? And they they basically, you know, pose the question of, is this utopia real? Okay, I know utopia is, I know you know, and probably a lot of the listeners know, actually translates out as no place, right? Mm -hmm. And then Raphael Hithliday, who's the narrator, um, in Hithlidaeus, uh, in the Greek, uh, translates out as blower of wind or bullshit artist, right? And so here we are, introduced to this beautiful world um, that doesn't exist by a fellow who's the bullshit artist. And so it immediately sets up this interesting set of dynamic, right? Which is like, what are we supposed to believe and what are we not supposed to believe? And this gets played out in all the letters and so on and so forth in really inventive ways because he had his friends, the literate of Europe at that time, write some of these letters. And they're all playing and teasing with this idea is does it exist or does it not exist? And this is part of this um, idea of serious fun, which he was interested in at that time, which is really part of sort of Renaissance humanism. Um, but what I like about it is that it sets us up between we're supposed to take it seriously, which is kind of the dominant reading of utopia, particularly um, the, the sort of Catholic church reading of utopia, because he's a saint in the Catholic church. And then the revisionist history, which is it's all satire. Um, and I think that what Moore was doing was something far more interesting. What he was saying is like, I'm going to shock you out of your present. I'm going to shock you out of your capacity to imagine anything other than the world that you live in by introducing you to this wild world where everything is topsy-turvy, right? So he's taking us on a little journey. Mm. Uh, we no longer are sitting in our moment in our society because we can imagine a different society operating with different principles. And just as you're there, right? And he makes it really sort of rich description. So you go there, right? Then he says, oh, but by the way, this doesn't exist. Um, and it's all a farce. And I just made this thing, whole thing up. And so you're kind of stuck with a choice as a reader at that point. You can't go back home um, because you know that another possibility might exist, but you can't exist in his world either, right? And so either you just go collapse into despair or mm -hmm. you actually have to imagine your own world um, and your own possibilities. And that's where the hope comes in, right? And the imagination is I've always thought, you know, since doing that sort of work around Thomas More's Utopia, that what he's really done is built an imagination machine. Um, an imagination machine. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of, it's a prompt for imagination. Um, uh, what's possible? Um, here's one idea, but it's not real. So come up with your own idea. Come up with your own ideal. And I love that idea that he's doing that in 1516 in a book, right? Creating an imagination machine. Um, and so I've gotten, you know, since that time, I've become really interested in utopia. And then through my political work, so, you know, by day, I'm a mild-mannered college professor at NYU. And by um, weekends and holidays, I train activists around the world um, in sort of tapping into their creativity and tapping into their imagination. 
And uh, I've gotten really interested in utopia because it is that sort of imaginative ability that the arts have and that creativity has, which I think we need so badly and activists need so badly. We, we tend as activists to look at the problem which is in front of us, right? And I'll give you an example. I worked with these um, women in Houston, Texas, and they were... Um, their campaign was around family rights for young people who had been incarcerated. And most of the women, children had been incarcerated or were incarcerated at that time. And so we got to this moment, which we often do in our workshops, which is we call imagine winning, which is like, well, what would a win look like? Mm. And because they're really good activists, they are very focused on objectives. A win would be the passage of bill HR bill 320, which was going through the Texas Senate, which would allow more visitation rights. So we said, okay, good. Now, let's say hypothetically it passes. What's next? And then the very good activists, so they're like, well, then we need enforcement. There's all sorts of bills to pass, but we don't have enforcement. We go, guess what? We're from the future. You passed it. What's next? And then slowly over the course of like 15 minutes of doing this sort of guess what? You did it. What ends up happening is people move from the problems in front of them to the world that they would imagine. And they start talking about communities that are whole. And then we ask them to take us on a trip. What does a community feel like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? And they talk about the smells of food being cooked and hearing children laughing and the experience of sitting down at a big table. Um, and what that exercise is about is about getting these people who work day in, day out on problems to tap into the future that they actually want to bring into being. And it's not just for some kind of feel-good experience. It's because that future is a common future. If you don't have a kid who's incarcerated, and if you're not a, 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 a you know, a, someone who's in criminal justice, you don't really care about HR Bill 350, right? It just isn't concerning you. But the world that these women conjured up, we all want to live in that world. Right. And so kind of using that sort of utopian vision and then building that backwards. And so that all the tactics in their campaign are actually aimed towards the world that they want to bring into being, as opposed to aimed at the dumbass Texas legislature and, you know, horrible racist criminal codes really can be a sort of a mind shift. Um, and I, I think it's not just a mind shift for the activists, but it's a mind shift for their audiences as well. And so I'm a big fan of Utopia. I'm feeling hopeful already, Toby. Look at just talking to you, I'm feeling more hopeful. <laughs> really, what you're talking about is the pursuit of the good life, however it may be defined, I think. And the way in which, if you think of it in terms of ideas which are problematic, but at least interesting, of counter-public spheres, and the necessity of organizing yourself so that you know who you are as an entity, working out what you want to get, what you want to happen, but then finding a way of translating that that makes sense for others. Yeah. Some of this, it seems to me, is what you're describing, because by figuring the good life and offering that, to, as it were, to the Texas legislature as something that's impelling your thoughts, right? Yeah. Um, it, the, it changes the, the terms of the sport, to, for uh, not the sport, I'm sorry, of the struggle. Yeah. No, I, I actually... Um, I want to go back to that. Um, but I just want, you used the word translating. And I think that's such a key aspect right now, right? Which is how do we translate 
our own struggles, the struggles of the people we're closest to, uh, the groups that we identify with, translate that to a wider public. Because one of the things I really worry about is that we, and I mean all of us, no matter what groups we are in, get very used to talking to one another in our own particular languages and around our own particular concerns. And while that is fine, if all you're interested in is creating sort of a bohemian ghetto and, you know, or a, uh, a group in which fully, as much as they can, understands your own particular struggles, that's fine. But when you're thinking about political struggles and transformation of the world, you have to be able to translate that mm. to other folks. Um, there's just not enough people within whatever group you're in to actually wrest political struggle from those who do have power, unless you can do that translation. And so that translating, let's go back to cultural studies, I think is actually one of the things that go, is really what drew me to cultural studies, is that we were looking at things like music, looking at things like sport, which do that sort of translation on a wide scale. So my my younger son is now at the University of Glasgow. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, uh, I've been saying, you know, next time I come, we've got to go to a Celtic game, right? Um, and one of the things that, you know, the Celtic ultra fans are really good at is translating these, you know, world historical struggles, like what's happening in Gaza, um, to a different context, but putting it within a discourse of sport as opposed to a discourse of protest politics, right? Um, by waving the Palestinian flag, by being unrepentant against their hatred for the royal family and all of those sorts of things. Um, they do this sort of very radical intervention of ideas, but within this sort of familiar translatable space, which is the, the football stadium. Um, and I think that's what I've always loved about cultural studies is that translation in a way is at the heart of it. Can I throw a provocation in, yeah. in your direction, Prof, if I may? Mm -hmm. I think back to perhaps the last music Tom Lehrer ever did, <laughs> uh, the 1965 live album, that was the year that was, when he's looking back with a kind of nostalgia to the Spanish Civil War, which I've discovered since moving here did not end in 1939. It hasn't ended. <laughs> Just as the U.S. Civil War Never ended. It didn't end in eighteen sixty-five. There's a, there's a line, and I think it's about the spat, the Civil War here, where he says, "They may have won all the battles, but we had all the good songs," right, or something like that. And I've often thought of you know the, the kind of language of cultural studies, such as culture is a terrain of struggle, as inspirational and correct. Here's my but or my problem or my horror. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, ghost of Adorno and the more pessimistic bits of Benjamin. Who is actually winning the struggle over spectacle at a populist level? It's the fascists. Yeah. Yes. And uh, there, so the Republican Party is no longer, if it ever was, the party of law and order. No. It's the party of complete disrespect for formal institutions and complete disregard for suburban behavior. It is the party of revolt and rebellion. Now, yeah. of course, it's in the name of established centers of power, like the ruling class and white folks, particularly white men. But yeah. nevertheless, they're the people who've really mastered this stuff. Whereas if you go back 20 years to uh, Clinton and you go back 15 years to 
Obama. Not that they're the left, but the Democratic Party had a hold over smart slogans and new technology, for example. Plus, of course, I, actually, I now remember, I think um, one of the layer lines is we are the folk song army. Mm-hmm. Right? And that cultural terrain was clearly, in inverted commas, ours, however problematically construed. My provocation is that investing in that may have achieved some things, but I'm not sure how much. But one thing it did achieve was model how to shift politics into the cultural sphere on behalf of what we now have to call fascism. Yeah. Uh, You know, what you said is so rich. Um, And I want to take it into two directions. One is the Republican Party, and I would say this is true for the nationalist right around the world, has become the party of of creativity and spectacle. Um, The January 6th insurrection, you know, yes, I was horrified by it, but it kind of reminded me a little bit about of the carnival against capital that reclaimed the streets did in London. You know, you had the same costumes, you had the same performative politics, you had that sort of thing. Um, and so I was kind of aghast because I was like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, these people understand carnival. Um, and fascism, you know, we like to think that, you know, my business is creative activism. I always have to remind people that the most creative activists for the past hundred years have not been on the side of justice and peace and equality. They were the Nazi party who mobilized style and symbol and spectacle very consciously. Adolf Hitler thought of himself as an artist. Um, and he just, you know, as a, he was a pretty terrible watercolorist, but if you think about his palette being blood and destruction and his canvas being the world, well, he knew how to mobilize creativity. Um, there's a great book of Frederick Spotts um, uh, about the aesthetics used by the Nazi party, which is re- really quite readable and um, wonderful book, wonderful book. So part of it is one of the things I could say is, yes, that, you know, they renamed my dream book, um, Dream or Nightmare. Um, and I had to rewrite the introduction um, about that in the 10 years since writing that book, that it actually seemed that the right wing had adopted all of my ideas about the necessity for ethical spectacle, dropping the ethical, although (laughs) it is is ethical within their framework, right? Um, And while the left actually had kind of retreated into Puritanism um, and uh, the status quo in many ways. Um, That's one thread. The other thread, Toby, that you, you brought up, which I think is super, super important, and it speaks to that Tom Lehrer, you know, not many people know who Tom Lehrer is. And my dad actually introduced me to Tom Lehrer. And uh, I used to have a 78 of Tom Lehrer. <laughs> uh, he's, he's an ABD mathematician who taught at Santa Cruz for many years. <laughs> oh, he did, yes. Uh, he taught at Dartmouth, too. Uh, okay. um, yeah. Or Harvard. Or, anyway, one of those East Coast. It must be Harvard. He has a song about Harvard at one. Making yeah. fun of um, So in any case... Like what you, what you put your finger on is something which haunts me a little bit, which is to say, well, let's assume that in many ways that progressives have won the cultural battle. And I think this is what freaks out conservatives is that they turn on the television and there are, you know, gay relationships. There's transgender folks. There's cross racial relationships. Um, 
class is still the kind of the taboo thing. Everybody seems to be middle class in this world and have nice apartments. But by and large, um, their vision of a white Christian country, a white patriarchal Christian heterosexual country is no place to be found uh, in popular culture, right? Um, Yet at the same time, we have probably been, and the we being progressives at this point, have been more powerless than ever. And sometimes I worry about the sort of the cultural studies um, emphasis on culture that done badly, it mistakes cultural power for political power, right? Um, And I remember back in that, you know, one of the first sort of documents of cultural studies, which made its way into the rituals of resistance, which are those mimeographed, um, and I forget who it is. It might be, you know, when all, when four or five are writing at the same time, but they really talk, they talked about this idea of that culture can be a magical resolution to real world problems. And so in the early days of cultural studies, there's very much an awareness of the dangers of culture being a magical resolution for real mm, world problems. Mm, mm. Um, and I think that gets lost in later cultural studies. And we start to think, actually, the real world is the cultural world. And in some ways it is. It's where we live most of our lives. It it really creates our sense of values. But it comes a gloss over that sort of structural and material and political realities which exist nonetheless. And I think that we're seeing that at this moment of the we've won the culture war. We are the side with the good songs. But they won the Spanish Revolution. Yeah. They well, got Franco. Getting back to what you said about the 60s being lost in a sense, one argument against that, as you know, is that to use a German socialist rallying cry of the 19th century, the 60s birthed the long march of the institutions. And by institutions, I mean education and yeah. libraries. And It's no accident that these are two of the areas that the fascists target for particular opprobrium. Hatred, obsessive hatred. I did a podcast last night with Michael Deli Carpini, which was Mm -hmm. fantastic, speaking about what happened uh, in Congress, in committee the other day with the three presidents of MIT, Harvard and Penn, and, and the resignation, subsequently forced resignation, of Penn's president. Uh, and it seems to, and he thinks this is part of a long-term targeting of private universities, which should consider themselves secure by contrast with their public brethren who could be assaulted through state legislature. And we can see the way in which there's been an attack on librarians for a very long time, a very long time, because these were the two areas where feminists, people of color, progressives really set their stand, set up their stall for decades and very successfully in terms of things like the environment and LGBTQ questions, et cetera, you know, a whole raft of of issues. Um, So I I do think there was institutional success. The problem, it seems to me, is that uh, that never had, to get back to the point you just made, a capital P political corollary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. I mean, again, I think that there's, every time you speak to everybody, there's like, we could take it this way. We could take it this way. So what I think you're absolutely correct is I think that the, 
that both the academy um, and intellectual life in general, um, artistic life in general, um, the progressive ideas and ideals and progressive people primarily are the movers and shakers in these worlds. And I think that the right, after kind of stumbling around, still wanting to send their sons and daughters to Harvard, have now started to realize, holy shit, when I send them to Harvard, they come back and they hate me. Um, and so we, we've got to do something about this. Right? <laughs> um, and, you know, for a number of years, like Wisconsin was the first real estate to take this on. Um, they've been able to go after state universities um, and really pressure state universities for their political points of view. And now, of course, the strategy has shifted is they realize, well, wait a second, these private universities are independent, but they depend upon their alumni. And their alumni are much more conservative, particularly the alumni that make millions of dollars. And that, so that's this kind of alumni mobilization. And so I think that in some ways, you know, yeah, you're absolutely correct, is that the right has finally realized that we have hegemony in yeah. certain yeah. sectors um, and that they are worried about this and are going to take it back. On the other hand, as you ended that, was that, you know, for all the hegemony, what the fuck were we doing for the past 30 years? <laughs> you know, I mean, the Democratic Party drifted steadily rightward uh, until, you know, a little bit with Obama and a little bit more with Biden. Biden's probably the furthest left president we've had since LBJ. But, you know, if we were really in control of all these young minds, how is it possible that we are so out of power um, yeah. in, 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 speak for my own country, the United States, you know, um, so that there's a disconnect again between the sort of yeah. cultural and the disconnect I fear is exactly one on a larger scale that happens in the university writ large, which is we are able to have the capacity to hold on to sets of ideas, but abstract them from their application in the real world. Um, and it's that bridging that I'm actually really interested in at this point in my life, which is um, I've wanted to create both a course and a website called Theory Works. Theory in Works. Which, theory Works. And in which we would take on the highest of high theory, Deleuze, and say, okay, so how do we apply Deleuze? Like, and, and just, you know, let's understand it, but then let's see it work and see how it might apply. And we'd have a set of problems or projects we wanted to work on. Because I do think that there's something there in all of that. But without that application, those ideas become fetish objects, right? They become, you know, Benjamin's famous um, uh, concern about, this is in the author as producer, and he talks about these um, images of poverty becoming abstracted from the social conditions of poverty and becoming almost objects of aesthetic pleasure. And that's what I worry about with radical theory as well. Um, that in the academy, less so in the library, I still like libraries, but in the academy, the most radical ideas can become objects of aesthetic or intellectual pleasure. And there isn't much interest in applying them. And so when the kids get out, the application stuff is all come from their business world, or this is how we do things in the political world. And making that critical bridge, I think is super important. Hmm. It's so interesting, Stephen. I've done a few podcasts in the last few days mm -hmm. with people such as yourself who are senior within cultural studies. In <laughs> There's not a formal hierarchy, but people who've been around for a long time. You're all giving the same message. Interesting. In different ways. And this is in four different countries. 
fascinating. It and is did, really striking me, Stephen. And what would you say are the sort of main tenets of that message that you're hearing over oh, and over? We need to be more applied. Mm-hmm. We need to have, you know, using, I'm using, this is my cliche, real world impact. Mm-hmm. Theory needs to be a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, sometimes we need to work with things like business schools mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah. And we need to be prepared to, if we're prepared to say that many commercial cultural texts are of value, then we need to be prepared to engage with their makers and their owners as well. You know, it's funny, and I know this happened in the UK more rapidly than it's happening in the United States. And it's happening at the sort of lower colleges more than it is at the upper colleges. But there's sort of the demand often from conservative legislatures, that universities be practical. Um, and the sort of bemoaning of that by many progressives, this is an opportunity for us to say, bring it on. Exactly. Um, I think you you may know a friend of mine, uh, Stefan Shokadis, um, who teaches, I think, in Essex. Um, but he's in the business program. Yeah. And and I love it. He's one of the most radical thinkers and interesting and so much what and it is love that he's in the business well you know there was a moment and there is a sort of historical explanation for why someone as radical as he can be there and it's in part apart from his brilliance and productivity Mm -hmm. and entrepreneurialism because he is very entrepreneurial but not in terms of his own self-interest is that the thatcherite revolution in britain deracinated sociology, because it was the hate object of the day, not cultural and media studies, which later became that. When business schools were rising and becoming more and more popular, one of the things they didn't have was people who actually met workers Mm. or who'd been workers, who knew how offices worked, how factories functioned, uh, how trade arrangements were made. In other words, (laughs) sociologists you know, in the best Marxist ethnographic tradition who went to car factories and said, uh, how is this organized? They had all these neoclassical economics trained mathematical business school people who'd never worked anywhere in the sense of work that I obviously mean and who didn't know how life was organized. They didn't know about scientific management. They didn't know about human relations-based approaches to scientific management, nothing. So suddenly there was room for a cultural push and all these radicals were hired because Mm. they actually knew about this stuff or at least had read things about it. (laughs) The problem was, and I don't know how he's coping with this now, eventually, eventually the people running these universities and business schools found out about these radical rumps and they found out because lots of fee-paying students said this is all Marxist claptrap, right? Or deconstructed rubbish, or post-colonial nonsense. And you know, I, how is this helping me or my child become an accountant? Yeah. So there was a clear out. But it'd be great, actually. We should get him on, and the three of us, and anybody else you guys might wish to invite, have a conversation about that issue, 
and mm-hmm. surviving and thriving in a business school. It would it could be really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> however, we, we've got about a quarter of an hour left. What I'd like to do, if that's okay, is ask you a couple of questions, mm-hmm. and then leave it for you to add anything we haven't discussed that you'd like to, or bring in some new material related to what we have discussed. So my first question is, you've mentioned a couple of your publications and projects, but I wondered if you could give us a little tour of, you know, your fishing and non-fishing writings. <laughs> Well, I think you've tipped the hand, right? Most, <laughs> of, my, most of my books, uh, you know, are sort of predictably about relationship between culture and politics, right? Um, some are more activisty, um, um, and some are more scholarly. But that's you know, I mean, within that realm. Um, my last book published, however, was about fishing and activism, um, and and part of that comes from experience. Like I, I you know, Toby, you've published. God knows how many books, because it was an inordinate about 20 years ago. I remember someone introducing you and they kind of gave up on at a certain point listing the books. Um, But in any case, um, you know, as a writer, particularly as a writer, when you get to a certain age, you want to write about things that interest you. Um, You don't have to write or publish to get uh, the university degrees and the university positions. So you get to kind of relax into things. And so what happened during COVID is that I was sequestered and very nice sequestering to the tip of Cape Cod where I have a house. Um, and I really wanted to do something in which uh, I didn't have to wear a mask and I didn't have to be around people. And so I took up fishing after a 40 year hiatus. I was a big, big angler in my youth, uh, gave it up for, as I like to say, sex, punk rock and skateboarding. Um, but at the same time or only two at one time, <laughs> I, would, I, I would try to do most of them at the same time. <laughs> um, and, uh, and what I discovered about what fishing was that it was this perfect sort of activity, right? Um, but at the same time, I was still consulting um, on campaigns. And so what would happen is I'd be working, and I remember this very specifically, I was working with a group from, in Sarajevo. Um, in the Western Balkans, because I was doing a big project about anti-corruption campaigns, both in the Western Balkans and in West Africa. And so we were working with a group in Sarajevo, and they were discussing where to have their protest that weekend. And I said, well, uh, you know, one of the things I learned over the past couple of months is you got to fish where the fish are and not where they're not. And this actually was one of the things I learned. My first month's fishing was miserable because I was fishing where there weren't any fish. And once I found out where the fish were, all of a sudden I was catching fish. And so their response probably would have been any normal person's response, which is, what the fuck are you talking about? I said, okay, where do people go on Saturday? And I said, well, they go to the market. I said, that's what your protest is going to be. Um, and I said, well, what kind of protest can we have in a market? And I said, well, you have to study the coastline. And you have to actually, you know, fish whatever the hatch is, right? And what that means is you have to know the terrain you're working in, and you have to understand what the fish are eating at that moment if you're hoping to catch any fish. And they responded with, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> said, well, look, if you go in with your signs and your your slogans, you're just going to piss a lot of people off in the market, right? How about you open a stand? And you use that stand 
as a way to actually embrace people and talk to people and so on and so forth, right? Um, and they did it and it worked, right? And so, you know, not surprisingly, um, not surprisingly because, you know, it adapted to their situation. Um, and that's always a size of good activism. Um, but I started thinking as I was fishing that actually fishing was teaching me a lot about activism. Um, and that there was a lot of things I had forgotten about activism that fishing would remind me because fishing is really boring. So you have a lot of time just to sit there and think. And so what I started doing was putting a paragraph about a lesson I had learned from fishing. So I had to relearn how to fish and how it would relate to activism. Um, and it's kind of, and then I had my niece illustrate it with these beautiful line drawings. Um, and it's a really kind of beautiful book. Um, it also has that translation quality. Um, one of my comrades said, wrote to me and said, Steve, it's such a brilliant idea to translate radical politics to, you know, uh, people who just like fishing. Um, and I certainly didn't start out that way, you know, but part of it is we have, one of my ways of thinking about politics is you have to be able to speak the language that people understand. Um, and so if I can actually resonate with people who are fishers, and fishing is a huge both in the UK, the US, Japan, and other countries around the world, that, you know, if I can speak to them because they're interested in my fishing and then bring them along into the activism and kind of humanize that activism world, then I think that I've done a good political job as well. Um, so it resonates at both this authentic level, but also a little bit of an instrumental level. And at a certain point in a certain age, those two things get a little conflated. Um, which is my actual authentic self is so wound up with my persuasive uh, instrumental activist self that it's sometimes hard to, to separate those two things. And the fishing book is one of them. Uh, I'm reminded of Bertel Ullmann writing his book on how to pass exams, yes. where he said, where he says at the beginning, so here's the deal. This book will really help you pass exams and do well. The thing you're giving me is read it through socialist eyes and my socialist examples. And I think it'll be a good trade. Wonderful. Yeah. And so he was, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, Bertel was great that way because he also produced the board game, right? Class struggle. Uh, class yeah. struggle. And I think it came from a very similar place, which is how do we actually reach people where they are? Not where we imagine they should be or wish they were, but really where they are, and then move the point. Um, uh, William James. William James? Yeah, William James, the, um, the, the psychiatrist or psychologist and pragmatist philosopher, American pragmatist philosopher. And Hank's brother. Was it? He's Henry James' brother. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. Um, and uh, in any case, he, he writes this essay called The Moral Equivalent of War. And it's about, um, it's a lecture he gave to Stanford students, I believe, um, before World War I, in which he lays out this kind of the problem that these pacifists faced. And he himself was a pacifist. He said, if you approach people not understanding that people go to war for all sorts of good reasons, as well as bad reasons, things like honor, things like a higher cause, um, things like, um, uh, you know, self-sacrifice. Um, but instead, just go to them and say, war is bad, 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 bad. You're never going to 
attract them. You're never going to bring them over to your side. What you need to do is acknowledge that people engage in culture. This is the culture of war, but for us, it's popular culture. Even in culture we don't like, for all sorts of likable reasons. But then he said, then what we need to do is move the point, which is we have to create an alternative that resonates with all those ideas and ideals, yet is not channeled towards either you know destruction and war or capitalism and consumerism, but still fulfills those same sorts of needs. And that's always stuck with me, right? Um, the idea of meeting people where they are, understanding that people's attraction to things is often based in really kind of good, admirable reasons, and then giving substitutes for those. That's beautifully put. So I'll put a link at the bottom of this to your webpage. You have a great webpage that gives people, I think, pretty good access to uh, finding out a lot about your work. Um, but now as a concluding moment, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there are things that we've touched on that we'd like to say something more or something that we just haven't discussed at all that you want to add. Well, I'm going to ask you a question. And maybe it's a, it's a, uh, well, I think it's a question particularly relevant for you right now. How how do you keep hope? Heavy pause, loss of audience. <laughs> my daughters mm. and my cat mm -hmm. and memories hmm. i think so i have a an adult daughter who's about to become a mom mm -hmm. and that's going to do a lot for my tinder dating profile as you can imagine <laughs> off duncan i and she's very happy about that and i want her to be happy and so on and i have an eight-year-old mm. and i need to find ways and means of getting employment uh, which is a, has been a struggle for years now in order to give her the things that I want her to have and in order to be able to see her and spend time with her. Yes. So, you know, she lives in London. I have the right to 40 nights a year with her. Mm -hmm. She has her own room here in Madrid, toys, clothes. It's great. Mm. Um, and... There are all kinds of difficulties that I've confronted in the last few years, particularly this year. I mentioned to you visa issues, but also health issues. Mm -hmm. And really, it is my love for my children. However, Florida father, I definitively am, that keeps me somewhat zestful and with hope. Mm -hmm. Plus, the spirited example of, of friends and the way in which they help to prop me up and urge me on. Mm. So sorry for a very personal answer. No, that's, I asked for it, and that's, that's strikingly beautiful. And I think that that's sometimes as 
world intellectuals and world activists, we forget, I know, I forget, that what brings joy and hope is those intimate things. Um, my son, younger son, I told you he was at University of Glasgow. He just started and he was very sick at the beginning. He got COVID and kind of oh. fell into a depression. Um, and so what we would do, he'd often call me, you know, kind of distraught and say, you know, I'm feeling so sad and so and so forth. It's the usual oh. friend here. And at a certain point, I said, well, let's let's make a deal. What we will do is send a picture because we do WhatsApp, right? Um, we will WhatsApp a picture of something every day that gives us joy. And nice. it can be a plate of beer. It can be a fountain that we go past. It can be a bagel with cream cheese, right? <laughs> and I did it for him so he could lock into things that brought him joy in a, you know, in this new experience when he was feeling sick and in a gray city and so on and so forth. And he would send me pictures of his band that he had started and pictures of a pint. Um, and so all sorts of good stuff. But I also realized it helped me too. It helped me just to find little things. Like if we were still doing it right now, I would take a picture of my computer screen. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. He's home for the, for the holiday. Um, and this conversation with you, it's just sometimes in this world of despair, doesn't mean we don't keep fighting against the world of despair, mm -hmm. but it is important to rest little moments of joy and happiness. Um, otherwise, uh, we get ground down. Otherwise, we get too depressed and then we won't go out and fight. And this gets us back to where we began when you talked about those slightly demonic, sometimes despotic, sometimes demotic twins, hope and despair. <laughs> and uh, in the space of an hour, Prof. Duncan, you've given, I'm sure, other people as well as me a lot of hope. So thank you very much. And I want to extract a promise from you, if I may, that you'll come back to the pod soon and maybe for a virtual roundtable that we were mentioning might happen before. Yeah? I will definitely do that. And this has is, been, as I said, a bit of joy in my life talking to you and just seeing you against Toby. So thank you so much for inviting me. It's terrific.